This is Ben Guest, and this is the Creativity, Education, and Leadership Podcast. Today is a treat for me. My former summer intern, Asia Millette, is on the pod. Asia graduated law school at the age of 22. Not college, but law school at the age of 22, and is a public defender in Brooklyn. In this conversation, she talks about the inhumanity and the brutality of the quote-unquote justice system. Asia, thanks for coming on. You are a lawyer. You've been a lawyer for a minute. Six years. So I've been out of the country eight years. So what like, what did I miss? What happened in the U.S. while I was gone? It's everything. <laughs> Literally. Let me see. Eight years ago brings us to, what, 2013? Uh-huh. Um, 2013. So much. I was a... So that was my final year in law school. So it would have been my second half of my second year and also the first half of my first year. I mean, of my last year. Um, I think at that time, right, I was thinking about getting a job. Mm. And there was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot going on. I remember there was a Troy Davis case going on. Then we had Trayvon Martin. Well, that had happened already, but the trial was about to start. There was a lot of social justice things happening in the country around that time. Do you think we're in a different phase now? I mean, do you think there's going to be lasting impact, lasting change that happens? I'm skeptical. Hmm. I don't think so. I think that we have these like times of everyone's motivated and they want to do it and they're out here. And then it's just like stuff just keeps happening. And it's just, what's the point? You know, people, they tend to, they, they lose their steam, they lose their passion. And, you know, even with the best of us, I find myself, I'm not in the same mindset as I was last year. You know, last year was a combination of fear and rage and anger and just like everything all together. Whereas now I'm kind of like a little, like, we've gotten used to this new normal, right? So there's still, there was like all this push to, um, we're gonna invest on, we're gonna buy black, we're gonna invest in the black community, we're gonna this, we're gonna that. We had the blackout um, date and everything. And I went, where's the receipts? These big ass companies, like where have you invested in the black community? What have you done? What campaigns, what initiatives, what whatever have you done? Because just last year you were singing that tune trying to get everybody's money. So like now what? Everybody had on their website, Black Lives Matter. Our businesses had in their um, storefronts, Black Lives Matter. Yes, some of them probably actually, you know, supported and agreed with the Black Lives Matter movement, but some of them, they just didn't, quote unquote, they didn't want their shit being destroyed. So they're like, let me put this Black Lives Matter sign here because then maybe they'll um, pass by it, even though we all know it wasn't us doing that. So I don't, I'm jaded. I don't think so. I think that every now and then, every now and then something's going to happen and everyone's going to be up in an uproar and then it's going to die down and then something else is going to happen. So they're going to be in an uproar again. It's going to die down again. And then there's, there's just no change unless there's some changes in policies and regulations and laws. 
and don't get me wrong, in some country, in some states and counties, there there has been change. I know there's like a few places in the Midwest where they've actually like started putting in place legislation where um, in certain situations, there are like civilian people responding to certain calls. So like where there needs to be, there's like an emotionally disturbed person or something like that, where the cops really have no business being there because they're not trained to deal with an emotionally disturbed person. So there are some areas that um, are putting those in place, but I'm still skeptical until we see how that actually plays out. Because, you know, obviously I haven't, if I don't, I'm, I don't live in these places, so I haven't read up um, extensively, but Okay, so what happens if the civilian person responding to the call can't handle it? Do they call a supervisor? Do they then call the cops that were in the same situation? Do Are they now here in conjunction with the police to say, okay, you're assisting me, but this person has this, this is that, this is how you should deal with it. Like what, what happens if they can't get through to the person? So there's nothing really in place. It's just like a band-aid. Right. Hey, this is just my opinion. I'm one person. But yeah, I Yeah, but but I mean, one, you grew up in America, and two, you're you're a public defender now. So you've seen the justice system as it were, how it works from the inside. Yeah. Um, I mean they put there's a lot of initiatives that they put in place as intended to, you know, dismantle the system of oppression that is the criminal legal system. I don't call it the criminal justice system because it's not just, it's the criminal legal system. So there, even in New York, they had bail reform. They had all of these reforms because like in New, um, they had discovery reform. In New York, there was, we had like one of the, um, the worst like open file discovery policies where pretty much like you can have a case open for how many years and the, the district attorney's office is just trickling information down to you, just trickling it in and trickling it in. Cause they're, you know, the laws, they didn't obligate them to get it to you in a certain period of time, as long as it's before trial and they have tips and tricks and ways to delay the trial so that it's not attributed to them so that you're, it doesn't, implicate your speedy trial rights you know so they just keep kicking the can and kicking the can and kicking the can and now it's three years later like most of your witnesses if they they're now giving you a witness list three years later how am i going to track down any of these people there was a case in the bronx where the complainant had been dead dead for like over a year this guy is in jail and they just kept, trial kept coming. Oh, judge, we're not ready because whatever, for whatever reason. Oh, judge, we're not ready. This is the reason. Okay, cool. I'm going to adjourn it for four months, but only three days of that is going to count, is going to count against the people. And then eventually they had to disclose. And it's like, you could not, like, there's no way that you could have made this case because you had no complainant and you knew you had no complainant because this person was deceased. And you continue to hold this person and this um, client in jail just because you can, because the law, it's allowable under the law. Jeez. So they knew the complainant was dead? Oh, yeah. It's their witness. That's and so just didn't up. disclose it. 
But now we have reforms in place where they're supposed to give us things in a certain amount of time. And of course you have people who are, you know, out there uh, saying, well, if we have to give contact information of complainants, it's going to, um, there's gonna be witness tampering and witness intimidation and this, that, and the third. First off, most crimes and cases are between known persons. So you giving me the number, it's like a number that I probably could have gotten some way through my client anyway, but it's not the point. The point is you have to give me access to this person who's accusing my client of something. You know, if they don't answer, hey, they don't answer, but you, you cannot be the gatekeeper of information. And that's kind of how the discovery statute had always been. It's really up to them to figure out what they think is relevant, what they think is this, what they think is that. Now it's no, if it could in any way be related to the case or related to somebody's um, testimony with regard to the case, they have to give it to us. So it's been better, but again, there's been pushback. There's been pushback on the bail statute. We've had um, bail reform where uh, a lot of, they completely revamped the bail structure where now a lot of offenses are not bail eligible. So the DAs can't even ask for bail. And then there are um, rules and standards with respect to the rest of the charges. So like on this type of charge, okay, you're allowed to ask for supervised release. You're not allowed to ask for this. You're allowed to ask for ankle monitoring. You're not allowed to ask for this. So there's, there's like a structure in place. And when that came down, oh my gosh, it's all these like articles and this and that and like transit recidivist released from jail under new law. And it's like really transit recidivist. So somebody is jumping a turnstile in the subway because they cannot afford the increasing prices of a Metro card or just a swipe. And this, this, is, this is front page headline news. And now he's just out and about so we're gonna incarcerate somebody for how many days and how long because they didn't pay 275? That makes a whole lot of sense. And really, this is this is the case you wanna put forward as not agreeing with the new bail changes. But you know, there are some other cases too where you know if a client has a horrible record, like really, really bad record, and the law says that they can, the judge cannot set bail. They have to be released. And I've been in court where judges are now putting on the record. Like there was a Supreme, I remember I was in arraignment one time and there was a Supreme Court judge. He was sitting there and he was like, um, he essentially made a, a, a whole record on why he would have set bail on this person. He wants to set bail on this person, but because the legislature has decided that they want to take these, this step and just have you know blanket rules with respect to certain offenses, he can't set bail. But now it's in this man's arraignment. Like it's, it's on the record, everything he, he feels about yeah, this bail statute is bullshit, it's dangerous, we're releasing people out that I wouldn't have released because he, and then they're laying out why bail should be set and then say, oh, but ROR because the legislature said so. So you're trying to undermine everything that's been done. So yeah, I, it's always gonna be pushback. Mm. You said 
You don't call it the criminal justice system? No, not anymore. Hmm. I used to. I have I have rarely seen justice done. I'm not gonna lie. Um I I would probably say there's a handful of cases that I have where I'm just like, okay, this was this was the right outcome. Like this was the right, you know, for everybody based on like this is a situation, this is this, this is that. Only one, yeah, maybe a handful of times I can I can say. And you know, in those in those cases, I'm like pleasantly surprised that it went that way because I'm completely expecting my client to be railroaded. How often do you see injustice done? Every day. Every single day. When I go to court, when I'm in arraignment, every day. Just hearing the stories from my colleagues, it's just like, wait, what? For example, Arguing with judges. For example, okay, I had a case. I'm in arraignment. So in New York City, um, so arraignment is the first time that you see a judge after you've been arrested, usually the first time. So you've been arrested, they take you to the precinct, they figure out what they're going to charge you with, they drop their complaints and things, take your fingerprints, run your rap sheet, all of that. Then they send all the paperwork to the DAs, they work it up, they draft their paperwork so that they can file it in court to commence the proceeding against you. And during sometime during this time, after they're finished processing you, and they're waiting for all the paperwork to like go up the pipe and finally get to um, court. Now you're at the courthouse in the holding cell, they call the pens. So um, the first time, so that's where you meet your lawyer. So they would give us, um, a, they'll give me a file and say, here, I'm signing this case to you. So our clerk gives us a file, I look at it, I see everything. Then I go and I speak to my client. So that's what arraignment is. And then, out, and then when you go in front of the judge, the judge makes a determination whether or not this person's going to fight their case at liberty or if he's going to set some type of bail or restrictions on this person to ensure that they come back to court or the person could take a plea if you know the DA offers something reasonable. I had a case where it took me it was, it was literally over 24 hours. It might've been like 30 hours to handle this case. Um, I was in arraignment one night. So arraignment runs from, there are two shifts. It runs from uh, day court is 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then night court is 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. So I was in a night court shift. I picked up a case. It came through maybe like 6.30. And so that's 6.30 one night. And by the time I finished that case, it was, when he got out, of, when I got him out of custody, I think it was like seven the next day, the next night, like 7 p.m. Like the next night, by the time I got him out and was able to call somebody, so 24 hours, um, able to call somebody to get him, all that kind of stuff. So it turns out, I go in the back, I go to speak to this client. I'm looking at the complaint. It pretty much just says that he hit his mom. So he's charged with assault for hitting his mom. Um, and I go in the back and I talk to him and 
in the first 30 seconds, you can tell that something's off. So I'm like, okay. So I get a little bit more information. He's just kind of talking like, yeah, they're not nice back there. And I'm like, well, what's happening? And he's trying to tell me about it. So I, I'm able to talk to mom. So it turns out that this client is, he was maybe 21, um, autistic and schizophrenic. So yeah, he was having a problem with his mom because he has like mental health issues and he's autistic. So, um, you know, he gets, he gets into the altercation with his mom because he went out and she was call, trying to call him because I guess she felt he was out too long and she was worried about him and he got frustrated. She always wants to tell me what to do and I, I can do it. I know where I'm going. So when, she, when he got home and she was to, um, confronting him, he got frustrated and he hit her. And it's like, he knows that's wrong. He's not supposed to do that. So he walked to the precinct nearby and he told them, I just hit my mom and he's arrested. And in Brooklyn, they give out orders of protection like candy. All DA has to do is ask for them. I've seen ridiculous cases where they ask for orders of protection that exclude people from their homes. So um, they were asking for an order of protection. I called mom, mom is like, look, I really don't want him like home right now because he's like much larger than me. You guys don't understand when he gets mad, like there's really a problem. So it's like, I can really feel for the mom. Like I understand her concern, but also like, this is my client. And it's just like, where do you expect this 21 year old schizophrenic autistic kid to go when I already picked up the case at six o'clock? So if he's released during this shift, he could be released as, late as eight uh, as late as one o'clock in the morning so i'm talking back and forth talking to mom mom like a little bit of a language barrier she spanish is her first language but our clerk is helping me talk to her and she's pretty much telling me like yeah i don't want him in jail but i also don't want him here now i ain't gonna tell the prosecutor that <laughs> i'm gonna just say well i spoke to mom and she doesn't want him in jail i ain't gonna say the other part because i don't have to that's not their business <laughs> they can call her themselves and ask about the order of protection. I'm not saying that part. So um, they just would are like, yeah, we just have to ask for the order. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Let me just, let me just try to get the kid out of jail. Cause it doesn't seem like they're asking for bail and, or I don't think the judge should set bail. So I bring the client out. I'm trying to arraign him so I could at least get him out of custody. And then we can figure out where he's going to stay for the meantime, he comes out maybe like 30 seconds into the arraignment, the judge stopped, she looked up, she was like, approach. I'm like, shit. So I approach and I'm like, so we all approach and she's like, is there something going on here? And I'm like, shit. And I was like, yes, your honor. So now I have to disclose like, yeah, he, have it, he has some issues and she's just, she just doesn't want to release him. She's like, I'm concerned it's late because by this time it's like really late in the shift because I'm back and forth trying to talk to mom or whatever. She's like, yeah, I'm concerned. Let's let's try. Actually, it wasn't late. It was before dinner. She's like, yeah, you need to figure out what's going to happen because if they're giving an, or an order of protection, where's this kid going to go? So now at this point, the judge is like, I'm inclined not to release him because I don't know where he's going to be. And it's just like, well, jail isn't the answer. Like you don't just keep someone in jail because you're concerned that 
they can't take care of themselves on the outside. So now over lunch, I have to like figure out, is there a shelter I could send him to, refer him to anything like that? All the, so none of the social workers are available because it's a night shift, like no one's working. So I really, I literally have no resources. I'm able to finally find um, a drop-in center, like a male shelter. And I call them to ask them just basically like, hey, I have this person, what time do they have to be there? What do they need? Because you know, you need an ID. You need a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily have on you if someone just like arrests you, especially if you're not prepared to be arrested. If I'm just in my pajamas and someone comes to my house and says, yeah, this person says you punched them, we putting you in cuffs, I have nothing. So he doesn't have an ID, he doesn't have anything. So how is he even gonna check into a shelter? And if there's an order of protection, he can't go home. He can't call his mom. So um, in the end, the what the shelter told me is that as long as he gets in by X o'clock, we'll be able to take him. I said, okay, and so how do the beds work? Is he's gonna have a bed and then he's there until whatever in the morning, then they have to leave and come back. He's like, well, it's not really a bed. I said, what is it? He says the plastic chair. It's a plastic chair. Yeah. So it's really not housing, housing like that. It's just to, you know, get people from outside in the elements. Wow. So now this 21 year old autistic schizophrenic kid is expected to be released at like 1230 in the morning, one o'clock in the morning, and somehow find his way to a men's shelter in Manhattan with no ID just to be offered a chair for maybe like a couple of hours until they're asked to leave again in the morning at like 6 a.m. after they have breakfast. And he's expected to do what now during the day, roam around? So it, in the end, the judge was just like, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't wanna do this. So I'm like, I had to leave him in jail overnight. Had to go back and tell him like, look, I know, but I, I gotta leave you here. Now, I wasn't even scared. Now, typically, if someone's not arraigned, you give the case back to the court and whoever picks it up, re-picks it up during whatever shift. Now, this, it could have went to another defender organization completely, just like not even my job, um, depending on if they were primary the next day. But I was just like, can I keep this? Like, I, I will come back tomorrow and I'll, I'll do it myself tomorrow. I'm not even supposed to be in arraignment tomorrow, but I will come back and deal with this kid. And they're like, okay, if you want to. So now we have a different judge. It's the daytime. I'm able to get mom down here. I'm able to get a social worker involved who calls his, um, uh, the mental health office that he's working with. And in the end, it ended up working out um, at least temporarily, like I was able to get him out of jail. And then we had a plan that the cousin was gonna come and get him for the night until we had set up some kind of emergency housing for him that he was able to stay with at for like two weeks until we could figure it out. Um, but that, it was just sad that a judge was really gonna keep somebody, or well, she did, really kept somebody in jail because they have mental health issues. like having mental health issues isn't a crime, right? Especially if mom doesn't want an arrest, mom's not interest, interested in pursuing charges, mom just wanted him out of the house because he was being physically threatening at that moment. But at the end of the day, that's still her son, she still cares, but she can call the DA's office and say, 
I don't want to pursue charges. I don't want anything. I'm not cooperating with you. Leave me alone. But the law says that they have 90 days to try to make their case. So that's three months, three months of someone telling you from day one, I don't want this. I am not quote unquote pressing charges. I do not want to see my son prosecuted for what he did to me. And you just like, well, to hell with what you said, because I know better. I know what's best for you. And I, and this is what's best to prosecute him. Oh, well, you want him to get help? Well, we can help him. You know, we can help him do a program through the court. First off, no, you can't. And prosecutors, they do that all the time. They, they dwell on, on complainants' um, desire to help, right? Like a lot of times when these, when these um, calls happen and people get arrested, it's just because families want help like yo he's just being really like he's just being really loud right now and I'm kind of nervous can you just get him out of the house right for for a few hours they don't want you in the system and arrested and going through it for months and potential and facing jail time they don't want none of that they just want help like it might be a yo he's he 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 I'm just concerned for him like let's say he's arrested for stealing his mom's purse and she's like look I know that he has a drug problem and that's why he stole from me. Like, I just really want him to get help for drugs. And the DAs will say, well, we can have him do a program from the court. Like, what do you want? You want him to do a program? We can have him do a program. We can this, we can that. And it's like, no, you can't. You cannot force a client to do anything. He must be convicted and sentenced. And he, they can't get a conviction if he doesn't plead guilty without the complainant. So you're making it seem as if, hey, we can help him. This is you helping him. No, when you know that they don't want to prosecute and what you are getting them to do is agree that they want to prosecute so that you can offer the client a program, a program that the client doesn't have to take. If you don't want to do a program, you don't want to do a program. It's, it's like they're negotiating a plea and the other person doesn't know that. Right. We had a case where um, the, the DAs actually threatened the complainant and she went and got a lawyer. And so we were able to kind of like work with her lawyer to be like, okay, yeah, what do you need from us? Okay, this is, a, yes, this is a DA's number. This is this, this is that. And he's just like, yeah, I'm not, you know, my client isn't interested in going forward. She doesn't want this, she doesn't want that. What are they gonna do? So I like I don't think that's just to have somebody um, in the system when you know the complainant doesn't want them in the system. And I know that you know there are situations where I get it if it's domestic violence, right? Like serious domestic violence. Like I get it. The complainant says she doesn't want to go forward, but you have five prior domestic incidents where cops were called and they saw bruises and there are all these dismissed cases. Like that situation I get, but this like mother, son, he has mental health issues. He had a tantrum. Essentially that's what it was. He threw a big ass tantrum. And now he there's, you know, he's potentially excluded from his house for 90 days. So what the mom ended up doing is she loves her child so much she moved out. She moved out of her apartment for 90 days so that he could have somewhere that he's comfortable with, something somewhere that's familiar to him so that he's not doubly traumatized by everything going on. 
like that's that's not justice to me like that that's not justice you know his case ended up in the end being dismissed because his mother wasn't cooperative but again that took 90 days so now there's three months of this young man's life of this family's life that's just like you know up in disarray because you guys decided to try to pursue a case you know you can't make and you know nobody wants. That's the exact opposite of justice. Yeah. It it is. And you you it happens all the time. You see it all the time. I had a case where I had another case where um my client um she's a middle-aged Hispanic woman um lived with her 14 year old son, her older adult son and his wife. So they live in a first floor apartment and um, you know, there's an upstairs apartment and there was a woman who lived upstairs with her two adult sons, um, with her two adult sons and uh, they sold weed. Nobody cares, like, you know what, whatever, it's not my business. My client don't care, it's like, it's not my business. They can do whatever, they want. I don't care. As long as they don't bother me. So nobody cared that they sold, they sold weed, but what they would do is they would come down, they had lawn chairs, they had, um, actually it was a second floor apartment, they would do it too. They had lawn chairs um, that they would put uh, in front of my client's um, door. So she lived on the second floor and the complainant, they lived on the third floor. So they would have their lawn chairs in front of her door and they would like sit in front of it in the hallway and smoke weed. And so now the smoke and the smell and everything is going into the apartment. And she would just try to tell them like, yo, I got a 14 year old in here. I don't need my kid like breathing all this ink. Can y'all just like, I don't care that you smoke. I don't care that you smoke. So we just don't do it in front of my door. Why don't you do it in front of your own door? So um, she got tired of it one day. They were smoking in front of the house. She came outside, she said something. Um, she called the cops. Cops came, but by that time the boys had left. So there was really nothing to do, cops left. She went upstairs to try to talk to the mom to say like, hey, like your kids really, I, 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 we don't like, can you not, I have a 14 year old here. The smoke is coming inside. It's it, like, I can't do this. And she, the mom was basically nasty. Like, well, that's none of my business. And well, they could do what they want, whatever it was. So she got frustrated. She went back downstairs. She picked up the chairs and she threw them down the stairs. Now, if you break someone else's, and she got, they called um, call the cops and she got arrested. They were not, nobody else, she got arrested. Now in New York, when you damage someone else's property, it's called criminal mischief. So it's a class A misdemeanor punishable by up to a year in jail. Um, get to court, I'm looking at the complaint. The top count is, so the top charge, most serious charge is an attempted criminal mischief which is a lower miss, it's a B misdemeanor punishable by up to 90 days in jail. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, why is this an attempted? And the prosecutor looked me in my face and said, because we're not sure whether the chairs were actually broken yet. So you arrested this woman, you're asking for an order of protection for the neighbor upstairs, which means she would not be able to go back to her home where she lives with her 14 year old child 
and you're not even sure if the chairs are broken? Are you serious? Yo, I, I flipped. I flipped. I looked at when he said that. I looked at the judge. I was like, because I had already made my argument as to why it should be a limited. Like, this is ridiculous. I told him her side of the story, what actually happened. And then for them to come out of their mouth and say, well, we're not sure the chairs are broken. I looked at the judge. The judge kind of laughed a little and he was just like, oh my God. And he's just like, um, hand me a limited order of protection. And I'm like, that's what I, it should be no order of protection at all. But that's what I thought. At least a, a limited would allow her to go back to her house. She just can't commit any new offenses against the woman, or it would be new charges plus a contempt for violating the court order. So it's just, and of course her case ended up being dismissed because it's BS to begin with, but she was undocumented. So now she has no status. You're dragging her through the legal system Every time she comes to court, there is a risk that ICE could show up and just pick her up because it is nonsense. That is not justice. And you have supposedly prosecutorial discretion. When you even saw those charges come through arraignment, you could have declined to prosecute and let that woman come home. I should have never seen her. I should have never met that woman. You should have declined to prosecute that right away. Why are we wasting our resources on this? That's not justice. It's not justice, but it's America. Yeah, it is. Sadly, it is. What, what kind of toll does all of that take? Honestly, it's, it's rough. It's, it's, it's really tough. It like um, it gets to you after a while. Uh, I'm trying to find it. There was a one of these nights I wrote something because it was just I was having a really bad day. Um, it was a night shift I had finished, and um, they had just done some BS during the shift, and it was just it was awful. Um, see. All right, I'll just read it because I feel like it was just like raw, uh, bad. It was 2.07 a.m. on April 12, 2019. It's 2 a.m. and I'm still up. I wish it was because I was binge watching Game of Thrones in anticipation of the final season or because of mindlessly scrolling social media, laughing at memes and bookmarking delicious looking recipes that I'll probably never cook. But sadly, no, I just got home from a night arraignment from night arraignment and my soul is just drained. I just watched two mothers effectively have their kids taken away with no prior history of abuse or neglect. And of course I'm directly in the line of fire when they, when they unleash their rage and hurt. I saw a 44-year-old woman who can barely move her arm because of a stroke, handcuffed to a bench, struggling to eat a stale PB&J sandwich that the officers wouldn't bother helping her open. Why was she there? A $20 cab ride she didn't pay for, so the driver takes her purse and locks her in the cab and drives her to the precinct. I watched a 23-year-old get sent to Rikers over another unpaid cab fare, all because he didn't pass some asinine risk assessment checklist. So of course, jail was a better alternative. 
I'm usually pretty good at taking a moment then brushing it off. So I'm not vicariously traumatized every single day. But tonight was tough. Tonight got me. Just one thing after the other. Tonight I ask, why am I even here? That's the toll it takes. Where sometimes you're just like, what's my purpose? You do whatever you want anyway. And when I tell you that woman, she had um, essentially someone with the PB&J sandwich, she had a stroke. So she's clearly um, struggling and they had her dominant hand cuffed. So one side, she can't really move and they had the dominant side cuffed. So now it's like, she's already on, just sitting on the bench, cuffed to the bench and she got this sandwich and I don't even know how long she had the sandwich. And I come back there and I go to meet her and I'm like, you need some help? And she's like, oh yes, thank you. It's just like, how long you had this sandwich? And it just, and you're just, y'all are sitting there watching her struggle. And I did, there was, and occasionally you will find like a little sliver of humanity somewhere. And there was one, um, it was a corrections, it was NYPD because she hadn't been arraigned yet. So it was not corrections, so it was NYPD. And they were just like, wait, what her charges are? And when I explained this, they were like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. And she told me a story where one time like someone had come in like that and they felt so bad that they just started passing around. Wait, how much you got? How much you got? Like just trying to collect money for the freaking cabbie to be like, yo, it's really not that. Like, can you just, it's really not that deep. So like to take this woman's purse and lock her in the cab and drive her to the precinct it's like over $20. Like, I understand everybody got to eat. The cabbie got to eat. But guess what? You're still not getting your $20. Well, actually, he ended up getting his $20. I had to, like, that's what had to be negotiated for her to get essentially a dismissal. That yeah, she paid for the cab ride. Right. So she comes back to court. She got to bring her daughter and then it became clear after talking to her daughter is not only did she have a stroke, it was she had like early onset of dementia. So the prosecutor's first, he's trying to get community service. And I'm like, wait, what? And then I'm explaining to him, like, look, she has early onset of dementia. She's this, she's that. I'm not sure she'd even be able to get through community service, especially if you're asking for a lot of hours where she has to sit there and listen to directions. Someone's telling her what to do and someone's this, someone's that. Like she's having a hard time. And this is like, it's a cab ride, like, come on. She already got cuffed, she got brought through the system. Like, isn't all of this punishment enough? And I was finally able to convince him to take off community service, but it, it's sad that it even took convincing. Cause this is something that was just a simple mistake. She was supposed to go some, um, she was supposed to, she got in a cab, she was gonna go somewhere. She, she got to the location and um, her brother was supposed to pay for the cab fare, but for whatever reason, he wasn't there. And she's like, yeah, so-and-so is not here. And she's just like, oh, damn. Well, okay, my caretaker lives two blocks away. Can you just take me there? I know she probably has money um, to pay for the cab fare. No, 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 you don't pay, you don't whatever. Uh-uh, I'm coming and take her purse so that she can't go anywhere or she won't go anywhere because he has her purse locks her in the cabin and drives her to the precinct? Like, how long did it take you to do that? 
you missing other fares. You could have just been like, damn. And go about your business. It's like we talk about, at least finally, in some circles, people in the U.S. are having the conversation about systemic racism, which is baked into the system. But brutality is baked into the system. Whatever the opposite of empathy is, it's baked into the system. Um, It's just people treating each other badly. And and the thing is, you don't know how far those ripples spread out when you, when, when, when that's the experience people have. And so it's just constantly reinforcing itself. I would have to agree. (laughs) I think that was a perfect um, observation that yes, brutality is built into it. There's, I've had a lot of clients where, you know, I might get a file and sometimes you can tell like just by when you've been doing it long enough, you'll like, see, you'll get a file, you'll see it. Okay. And I used to do this a lot with like newbies or interns that were just shadowing. I was like, watch, is this, this, and this cool. Let's go talk to the client. So what happened? Well, it was this, this, and this. And I just be like, and they, the intern always asked, how did you know? And I'm like, when you do it long enough, you just know. Cause it's like, it's ABC. Everybody, so a lot of times everybody doing the same thing or like the cops are just fucking with people in the same way. So I, I had one case where, um, I look at the charges and the client, and then sometimes you, you get the case and you go and talk to the prosecutor because you want to know like, hey, is there an offer? Can we get rid of this right now? Are you asking for bail? If you're if they're not, you don't really have much to ask the client except, hey, what happened to get their side of the story while it's fresh in their mind? And then you just know they're going to be released and come back to court later and we'll figure it out later. And in between then, the DA is supposed to give us more information. Um, but sometimes if they are going to ask for bail, it's going to be a longer conversation because I need to figure out, well, what's your financial situation? They're asking for this much. Well, what's your ties to the community? Trying to get more information to either undercut what they're asking for or convince the judge not to set bail at all. So that's going to be a longer conversation. Or, you know, if it's something simple, we might be able to just resolve it. So client just gets rid of it and just doesn't have to come back at all. So I've had cases where a client is charged with obstructing governmental administration because essentially you're stopping a, an official from doing their official duties, right? And they usually couple that when it's a cop, they usually couple that with resisting arrest. So not only did you resist this arrest and, and by resisting arrest, you're obstructing my me from doing my duty of arresting you because I had a valid reason to arrest you. So I look for, I mean, usually that's how it goes. Um, so I look for, okay, what was the original thing that they even messing with the client about? And when I see disorderly conduct, which is a violation and not even a crime, then I know, okay, this client wasn't doing nothing or maybe just mouthing off. Cops didn't like it. It got rough, boom, slap them. They try to subdue client or whatever, slap them with resisting and obstructing governmental administration. So I see that the... Um, incident place is like a hot is a hospital i'm like hospital so now i'm thinking hey maybe the client had mental health issues he was having like an episode and then cops somehow came to respond he hit somebody or what or was wilding out and they charge him which is messed up if i'm coming to the hospital for mental health treatment if i wild out a little bit that's the whole point that i'm here like i'm, I'm in crisis something is happening 
So when I get a lot of these like assaults where they like kicked an orderly or something like that, it's just, no, you shouldn't be kicking people. I know I wouldn't want to be kicked, but also you're, I feel assumption of the risk. You're assuming some of this risk. You know that you're dealing with people with mental health issues that can have violent outbreaks. So if they kick you a little bit, just eat that shit and come back to work. Why are you getting people arrested? Anyway, so I go, I talk to the prosecutor and I'm like, you have an offer on this case? And they're like, the offer is an ACD. So an ACD is an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal. So essentially they adjourn your case for six months. You don't have to come back to court. And as long as you don't get arrested, even if you get arrested, they don't do anything most of the time. If you get arrested, then they have the option to put your case back on the calendar and it would just continue from where it left off. So they would still have to exchange discovery, negotiate. They would have to do a trial if they were intending on, um, if they wanted to move forward and you weren't gonna take a plea. So I'm like, why are you offering that? I'm thinking to myself, why are they offering that on this case? So first thing I'm like, all right, I gotta look at my client when I get back there. Go there, there's like a gate. Just, you know, it's not just you directly with your client. Go in the booth, see the gate, push my eye up against the gate. Fucked up. Bruise, cut, lip bust. I'm like, that's why they fucked him up. Sorry. And they needed a reason. They messed him up. Oh, so during the arrest, they messed him up. Mm-hmm. And now and then and then slap charges on him. That's how they cuff. That's why they that's how they CYA. It was, it was a situation. He's in the hospital. I think he wasn't even there for him. He was there with his friend. And cops responded for whatever reason. And he was trying to help advocate for the friend and asking questions and, and whatever. And they just didn't like it. And they got into it with him. And eventually they beat him up and arrested him. Now that same client, I, so I refer, when I see that, I'm like, yeah, nah, you need to get paid. So I referred him, as, I was like, look, here, call a civil attorney, call a civil attorney gotta check i mean like down the line but gotta check you know how how often the city has to pay out for nypd fighting people like i i have i know for i have four clients personally four of my former clients who i know who have gotten paid by the city of new york because of conduct by the police craziness that's just mad it's it just a, it, you know this is america that's just my default it's like this is this is what america is this is what america's always been i mean it has been they say like the even policing is stems from when they were trying to catch runaway slaves mm-hmm. the way they police mm-hmm. so it's, it's ingrained it's, it's baked built in. into it it's, yeah. it's just part of the culture. So when I see like, you know, even a police officer who has the least bit of compassion, I'm just like, what? Like I have one of the handful of cases that I say, I, you know, justice was actually served. I had a client who, um, you can tell this woman was just like broken. So um, she was arrested for assault, for allegedly assaulting her boyfriend. 
um, and she got, um, there was an order of protection that was issued that says that she needs to leave the house. Now, this is, it's really her house. He was on parole and he like told the parole uh, officer that he was going to be paroling there, but it really was, it was her apartment. He didn't have his name on the lease, any of that. And the landlords are like, no, we will attest that this is her apartment. He does not have any rights here. He doesn't this, we don't want him here, um, any of that. But obviously, you know, now there are laws involved. If he got, if he went and got an ID, he had gotten an ID that had the address on it. And now there's squatters rights. So it's not as simple as a landlord just saying, we don't want him here. Cause like for them now they got to go to like actual housing court to evict him if they wanted to. So pretty much it excluded her from the house and um, it wasn't, it wasn't his house. So now she has nowhere to go. She's freaking out. She worked for the post office. So she has a really good job, but she can't really go to work. She can't focus. She's just like going through it. And so then, um, you know, he calls her and says he wants to work it out, that kind of stuff or whatever. So she goes back, obviously, and um, he threatens her with a knife. So she runs downstairs and she sees a cop. She happens to flag the cop down and the cop says, uh, and then um, he comes and says, uh, she, she's the one who threatened me with a knife and she's not even supposed to be here. Um, I have an order of protection. So now they arrest her again because she's not supposed to be at the apartment. So she's calling me and she comes to the office. She's crying. She really don't know what to do. She, he keeps blowing her phone up. The reason why this even started is because um, uh, she wanted her car back. He had her car. She wanted her car back because she needed to like get to wherever she was going. And he felt that it was his and he didn't like how she was asking for it. So she he made up a lie and said that she came to his job and like threatened him and all this stuff. Now, here I am. If I had to fight the case, I would have to try to go get video, talk to people to prove that she didn't do anything. And now he keeps, because he knows that he has something over her, he keeps getting her arrested and keeps getting her arrested. So I end up finding out, because now once she's um, represented, they know I'm her lawyer. Sometimes it's easier if there's something called an I-card, it's kind of like a warrant. So someone can go in and make a complaint and, um, you know, the quote unquote perp isn't right there. So what the police do is they take down the complaint, they issue an I, they assign a detective to it, they issue an I card, essentially like we have a warrant for this person's arrest for this offense, or we have um, a warrant for this person because they, we wanna talk to them about this, that we think they're a witness. So I ended up finding out that there was an i-card out for her because he called her phone i see her missed calls he called her like 30 times trying to get her to come home and she says she she was basically ignoring him like i don't want no parts of this i don't want to get in trouble so he didn't like that either so now he calls the cops and makes another complaint against her so now i'm going back and forth talking to the detective and i'm trying to explain to the detective what's going on and how he's manipulating the system to really railroad this woman that he doesn't live there it's not his apartment it's not this it's not that and even i was able to speak to his parole officer his parole officer even had said to him you cannot live there i am not off that is not an authorized address for you because they would get into it so much and he would get arrested for a DV case. The case would get dropped because my client never goes forward. So he's just like 
his parole officer is like, you guys are toxic. I don't think you should be with her. Obviously he can't like prevent him from being with her, but she can, he can say, I'm not authorizing that address. So I finally got the parole officer. I got the detective. We're talking back and forth. Detective happened to your woman. We're talking back and forth. She calls the parole officer. Parole officer confirms, no, he is not supposed to be paroling there. He does not live there, whatever, whatever, whatever. So they ended up canceling the I-card. I have never seen that happen. Wow. Ever, especially a suspect I card. The suspect one is where they're like, yeah, no, we know you did something or we have enough proof that you did something. When I come up to you, I can just arrest you. A witness I card where they just want to talk to you because they think you know information, they can't hold you on that. Right. It's just like in the system for like, hey, if you guys happen to come across this person, can you like let us know we want to come to wherever you are because we have questions for them. So mm. they can't hold you on that. The suspect, they can hold you on. They could have went out to her job, went to court, went anywhere to, to arrest her. But I was able to get in front of it, talk to the, um, to the detective, talk to the landlord, talk to the parole officer, just to show them that this guy is gaming the system because he knows how to do it. And he's using this to try to control her. And she didn't, she truly didn't do anything. So again, the detective, she was like, yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to get anybody arrested if they don't want to be, but just tell your client there is an I-card out right now. She needs to be careful, whatever, 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 while I investigate this. And I was so shocked when she's like, yeah, good news. I talked to this, I talked to that. And yeah, we're going to dismiss. And then I was able to talk to the prosecutor to tell to tell the prosecutor everything that was going on. She's like, oh my gosh, really? Well, can you send me this? Can you send me that? Like whatever she was asking me to send her, I was able to give her. And she's just, I'm gonna just let it go, basically. It's basically what she told me. Because again, this, these are DV allegations, the optics. If they say we're dismissing this case, it looks one way. If they say we ran out of time, the law says we we just went, we mm. couldn't we can't do it. Right. And that's something that looks it looks different. Right. It doesn't look like they're really like soft on crime when it's like, hey, I wanted to prosecute this, but the law just said I ran out of time. Versus I am actively dismissing this case because I know my complaint is full of shit. Right. So she's just like, yeah. So I'm gonna just not work on i'm just yeah like okay i got this information wink 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 yeah. wink like yeah. like yeah hey just know that i'm not gonna be doing nothing so, on it. so and in, in 90 days your case is gonna get dismissed so the fact that the system kind of worked the way it should or a correct outcome kind of happened is shocking oh so shocking <laughs> and like i said i can count on my hand and this was several cases and again this is i think it, at that point it was the fourth case that i was able to get in front of mm-hmm. so he has successfully gotten her arrested like three times before that oh my god and so like she almost lost her job because she's just not in the right headspace she couldn't go to work she can't get her uniform or anything and it's just like yeah you have friends and you may have really good friends but that doesn't mean that you can like stay with them or stay with them for an extended period of time. Like, yeah, I could probably help you out for like a couple of days, but if they got kids, they got this, they got that. Like you, 
Right. Don't have anything. So, you know, she didn't walk away unscathed. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. And, you know, and, some and, of those and, were and, and that was the best. That's the best outcome our system can come up with. Yeah. This is America. Millette, I got to wrap up. We got to wrap up for this time. Yeah. Hope you're going to come back and talk more. I'm here, Ben, whatever you want to talk about. Miss Millette Esquire. Jamesa. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for sharing. For sharing. I, I think, I, I hope lots of people listen. And I hope lots of people sort of open their minds to what they think the system is and what it actually is. I hope so too. I hope so too. All right, Miss Millette. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye, Ben. That was my conversation with Asia Millette. This is Ben Guest, and you can find all my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. And please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps with promotion of the podcast. Thank you and have a great day.